Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we're continuing our series on presidents with the third of five podcasts covering the life of Theodore Roosevelt. And today, we're going to discuss his his actual presidency. Um, As we discussed in our previous podcast, he had been nominated for uh, the vice presidency um, due to a series of um, events that... And he was not entirely enthusiastic about it because the vice presidency then, as now, is generally regarded as a dead end and uh, and a powerless position. As we saw when Roosevelt was assistant secretary to the Navy, that was not necessarily have stopped him. But it turned out not to matter because McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist named Leon Solgos. I'm sure I butchered that uh, in September of his first term. Uh, it was part of a pattern. Uh, King Umberto of Italy had been assassinated the previous year by another anarchist. Uh, in a bit of difference from today, uh, Solgaz was electrocuted 45 days after the assassination. Um, the first thing Roosevelt did was try to avoid a financial panic. And so he said it would be his aim to continue absolutely unbroken the policies of President McKinley, for the peace, prosperity, and honor of our country. Once again, he was able to manipulate favorable media coverage, and he actually got the editor of the Chicago Times-Herald to get uh, John Hay and Lyman Gage, both of whom distrusted Roosevelt, to stay on as secretaries of state and treasury, which helped uh, give the impression of stability and continuity that prevented the, uh, the financial panic. In terms of what he actually did once he was president, he was his usual uh, whirlwind of energy. Um, the Sherman Antitrust Act had been passed in 1890, but it had basically been a dead letter. Um, in 1898, there were 20 multi-million dollar trusts, but by 1901, that had exploded to be 185. Roosevelt was ambivalent about... Um, about trust busting, and in some ways, he he was aware of the distinction. For instance, uh, Standard Oil, while an abusive monopoly, had actually lowered uh, kerosene prices. On the other hand, the monopolies in the railroads had raised freight prices, which was disastrous for uh, farmers. Uh, J.P. Morgan was part of the same uh, New York society that Roosevelt came from, and he was inclined to look on these people favorably. But at the same time, um, 
the rise of these trusts was economically abusive. And Tom, I know you've studied this a lot more than I have, but uh, what what is your opinion about Roosevelt's behavior towards these large trusts? I think he viewed the concentration of wealth uh, as antithetical to either the American experience or perhaps the democratic experience. And at this point, they had just become too powerful. And uh, we have looked tangentially at these issues, I think most most notably when we looked at J.P. Morgan but um, and his role in the uh, Panic of uh, 1907. Uh, but the the trusts problem uh, became uh, huge, huge, and uh, just as you might say, it took Nixon to go to China, it took a Republican to bust the trusts, and Roosevelt did, and he did it in his customary way with uh, uh, nothing but one hundred and ten percent energy. The uh, as. I think our listeners know we are both in Houston, so I've always been fascinated with the um, case against Standard Oil because that trust was busted. Standard Oil was uh, split up, and it became seven of the most profitable companies in in the world uh, for many years, and uh, that became uh, you know the major energy companies of today. So uh, trust busting was not antithetical to a capitalist experience. It was not antithetical to the capitalist model. I think in many ways it helped the capitalist model because it created greater competition and at least the perception of fairness uh, and a perception of less economic inequality. So uh, I, I always enjoyed the, that era. I've enjoyed what uh, Roosevelt brought. He brought um, uh, a lot of uh, reforms that uh, had been percolating for probably 20 years. Uh, that included uh, food and drugs, uh, conservation. Uh, he's well known for and what he did to create the national park system, uh, dealing with the railroads who had, had literally had a stranglehold on transportation, bulk transportation in America. So lots uh, to, to look at there uh, as well from the economic perspective. Well, yeah, the uh, the railroads, of course, were the, uh, I guess, the, the, the Google and, and Amazon of the day, um, economic colossi that uh, that governed pretty much everything and controlled access to everything. Um, and there was an interesting target for him to attack, but I think you're correct that what he was really doing here was seizing on something that had been percolating and the sense of injustice I guess part, partly was probably his association with the muckrakers in, in New York as well. But he always, it was part of his populist uh, appeal. I would like to address his, his stance on conservation in particular. Um, at this stage of his life, he became quite aligned with a man named Gifford Pinchot, who was the um, head of the U.S. Forestry Service. And some of this, I think, was directly related to uh, Roosevelt's experience in Montana, where the overgrazing of the range had led to environmental devastation. Um, he himself had participated, of course, in, in the slaughter of the game out there. Um, in one of the books I'd, I'd read about it, he every now and then they'd find the last buffalo and he'd rush off to try and kill it. But I think his his experience in the winter of 1887 really kind of was was formative in that respect, along with his early life. And, and the, one of the real keys for him, too, was pure water. And he recognized that um, forests had to be preserved if, if uh, the watersheds were going to continue to exist. And 
it's hard to even imagine the amount of pollution uh, in the water in the, at this time. Um, you know, famously, the, uh, the Cuyahoga River burned in the 1960s, but it was probably not entirely remarkable at this time period for, for rivers to catch on fire. And the coal and early oil business, of course, were uh, environmental disasters. Um, here again, we also see his willingness to uh, bend and stretch rules. Preservation of American Antiquities Act of 1906 gave him the power to declare national monuments without Congress. And in 1907, he issued executive orders uh, preserving over 16 million acres of forest um, just on his own signature. Uh, you mentioned the food and drugs. This was the time of, of uh, Upton Sinclair in the jungle. And um, again, the the industrialization of the food industry had led to a lot of uh, phenomenal abuses and uh, tainted food and um, and all that. So <clears throat> Roosevelt actually addressed the message. Um, this was, I guess, at the beginning of his second term, and they got the Meat Inspection Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act passed. Um, which, which helped a great deal to alleviate some of these concerns. Uh, Tom, I think you were going to discuss the foreign policy of his, uh, of his presidency here. Uh, yes, Richard. I found this to be uh, equally fascinating. Uh, I wanted to talk about three uh, general areas of his foreign policy. The first was he, is, um, he won a Nobel Prize for his uh, arbitration to conclude the Russo-Japanese War of 0405. And uh, this came when he brought the parties to Portsmouth and he negotiated a settlement. Um, I think the parties, Japan and Russia, were both ready for a settlement. Nevertheless, they were able to either use the cover of uh, Roosevelt uh, negotiating or arbitrating, allegedly, between the parties uh, for a full settlement, or um, he was actually able to persuade them. That part has really never been clear to be. Uh, nevertheless, uh, he was given widespread worldwide credit for ending that war and ending that war on terms that both sides agreed to. So uh, when you do something that leads to a Nobel Prize, whether it's uh, 1904 or 2020, it's, uh, that's still a big deal. Uh, the second was his uh, focus on the Western Hemisphere and uh, creating Roosevelt's corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, Monroe Doctrine, basically from 1820, as I recall, uh, told European powers not to come to the Western Hemisphere. Uh, the Roosevelt Corollary took it a step further. He said that not only should you not come here, we will decide what we are going to do here, and we will do it. Um, so uh, that caused, I think, some some no small amount of consternation in the Caribbean, uh, Latin America, and in South uh, in Central America and South America. Uh, probably still ramifications of that to this day, but uh, he did have a very robust foreign policy in the Western Hemisphere. And then, of course, the Panama Canal. Uh, I can't say enough about the Panama Canal. We have both read David McCullough's great book on the Panama Canal. Uh, Roosevelt taking the lead in uh, getting this started. Uh, it certainly didn't finish during his uh, presidency. Nevertheless, um, he uh, tried to get a canal through Nicaragua when they uh, refused. He uh, instituted or instigated, I should say, uh, sorry for that, a faux pas, 
a uh, revolution which created the country of Panama and quickly signed a treaty with the United States, uh, uh, moved to start construction of the canal, and uh, the, um, supported it wholeheartedly. Uh, this was really all in two and a half years. Um, so uh, it's one of the most amazing presidential runs. When I sat back and as as we have both discovered in researching this podcast series, not only the breadth and scope of what he did, but just some, I mean, I had thought this was over eight years. It's not. Um, because when we get to his second term, things are very different. And the Republicans who he, who had supported him, I think very wholeheartedly in the two and a half, three years of the first part of his presidency uh, changed and they were not nearly as progressive and he was not able to pass uh, many of the progressive legislation that he proposed that later became law under uh, Woodrow Wilson. But uh, this was just a stunning run of on a variety of, uh, of fronts. Uh, he you're absolutely right. I mean, several times you've mentioned his energy. Uh, it was nonstop. It was boundless. And he took that energy and sustained that energy through this both terms of his presidency uh, as well. I'd like to also address a couple of other uh, aspects. Um, following the, the Spanish-American War, um, Cuba was actually handed over to the Cubans and the U.S. military governor was withdrawn in 1902. Uh, Roosevelt was, in many respects, a, a man of his time, and the Philippines were not handed over, in part, I believe, due to racial prejudice, uh, but also in part due to the fact that the, the Philippine insurrection continued against the American military government, whereas the Cuban uh, relationship between the Cubans and the American military government had been considerably more friendly. Um, we ended up with over 70,000 troops there a pre-Vietnam level disaster. William Howard Taft was sent over as governor. Um, there was the use of the water cure, which we today refer to as waterboarding. And uh, one of the generals had commanded his, uh, his subordinates to turn an island into a howling wilderness and kill all the uh, men over the age of 12, I think. A considerable black mark, I think, uh, on, on Roosevelt's record. I'm not sure how what he could have done better, but uh, but I, I do think it's a black mark. The election of 1904 was kind of a non-event, wasn't it? I mean, he was he was nominated and and uh, won with a, a substantial majority. But as you pointed out, his he was essentially ineffective in his second term. The major thing I remember about it was the cruise of the Great White Fleet uh, when he sent the U.S. Navy on a tour around the world to basically uh, advertise America's. Uh, coming of age as a world power is the way we we were taught it in school. I'm not sure how you feel about that. The work he did, uh, the great, uh, I think it was his announcement that, hey, we are now on the world stage. We clearly were not equivalent or equal to the United Kingdom, Great Britain, or probably even Germany or any of the major European powers of, at that time. But it was a, a, a power, a power statement of, a power projection of both hard and soft power that has been used throughout history. And indeed, I think we have looked at some examples of that in this podcast series. The, uh, the other thing was his, uh, when he was elected, he immediately became a lame duck. And um, that uh, is not, uh, I remember that 
in the Clinton administration, but it was clear in the research on this that the Republicans most particularly saw him as a lame duck uh, when he was reelected. But also his, his cultivation of um, our next president, William Howard Taft, and uh, giving Taft the opportunity to do many of the jobs uh, as uh, we uh, talked about uh, Taft in an earlier podcast. Um, and he had perhaps one of the most impressive resumes of someone of government service before they became president, once again showing that I once uh, heard James Baker uh, speak um, and someone asked him, how can you tell if someone's ready to be president? He said, you make them president. Um, it doesn't really matter what their resume is, how they sound, how they debate. They have to be president to determine how good a president they're going to be. And and we found that out with Taft. But um, uh, the uh, I don't want to say disappointment of his second term, but he sure seemed to be stymied in many of the objectives that uh, he tried to, to move forward on. There, I, I did find many leadership lessons, obviously, Richard, from his days as presidency. Uh, if I, if I could back up for a second, I think he had he made one of the rare mistakes in his career when he promised not to run for another term. Uh, of course, at the time, there was no constitutional prohibition on running for an additional term, and he'd only been elected president once since he uh, succeeded to the presidency on the assassination of McKinley um, for his first term. But in the, in the election of 1904, he did promise not to run for another term, which came back to bite him. Um, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, it's not clear to me why he made that promise. If he, uh, it was really a substantive promise that he had to, uh, to put forward or he felt it was the right thing to do. But nevertheless, uh, at that point, there was no constitutional prohibition. And even uh, the current Constitution uh, prohibition uh, would not have prevented him from uh, running again because he ascended to the presidency uh, via the assassination of McKinley. Uh, I'd like to maybe throw out some leadership lessons and uh, get to your comments, Richard. Uh, the first one was right. he was unafraid to surround himself with some true leaders. And uh, many of the people we talked about in this podcast that assisted him, cabinet members, uh, uh, others, were incredibly talented men. And I will say men because they were all men. And they were all white men uh, in their own right. Uh, So if you can surround yourself with other leaders, that comes from Doris Kearns Goodwin's (laughs) uh, review of Roosevelt that uh, that I think it will make you a better leader. An interesting one was maintain an open channel with adversaries. That comes from a blog post from James Strzok. That's not something uh, that we hear spoken aloud much these days, but I think it's a uh, a clear – Clearly a great leadership lesson and clearly one that needs to be engaged in more. And then finally, uh, you have to be able to take criticism. And once again, Sharon Briss uh, points that out. Roosevelt did take criticism, uh, but he would uh, not so much internalize it or even attack based on the criticism. If the criticism would valid, he would uh, uh, take that as new information and use that in his decision-making processes going forward. From uh, from your perspective, any uh, any others that you saw? Well, I'd like to ad- address the uh, the open channel with adversaries because it really was a key, um, I think, to a lot of his success. Um, and today, things seem to have gotten so binary and um, and unidimensional. Um, you're either agree on all things or you're you're an, uh, an enemy 
And Roosevelt took a much more nuanced view of that. As you also pointed out, though, he, he did surround himself with strong characters um, whose judgment he respected. His falling out with Taft was, uh, during Taft's presidency, we'll, we'll discuss a little later, but um, he had he really respected Taft, and he, he had uh, actually offered to appoint him to the Supreme Court when he was uh, serving as governor, uh, military governor of the Philippines, but Taft turned it down in order to complete that job. The other thing we see with, with Roosevelt is, and we've talked about his, his uh, constant learning, but also a mastery of detail. I think he was helped in this by, by some of the people he surrounded about, particularly uh, Root and Henry Cabot Lodge, um, were, were masters of, of law and legislation to a degree that I'm not sure Roosevelt was. But he listened to them and he mastered the details of, of legislation. Um, and that's, that's one reason I think his second term is so puzzling to me um, and why exactly the power had shifted to Congress. I think you're probably right that it was, it was simply his lame duck status. You know, again, his performance in his first term was just striking. Um, as you pointed out, the energy and the, what he got accomplished, um, and he just sort of coasted on his second term. In our next podcast, we'll be discussing the results of uh, his decision not to run again um, and its repercussions for uh, America in the 20th century. So for now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox and 12 o'clock high. We hope you'll tune in next time. This is Tom Fox. I hope you enjoyed this part one of our five-part podcast series on leadership lessons from Theodore Roosevelt. I hope you'll join Richard and I through the month of July on this special series on 12 o'clock high. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We are also a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join us again. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you next week on the Leadership Lessons from Theodore Roosevelt. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Редактор субтитров А.Семкин Корректор А.Егорова